Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our new series today, The Price of Victory, with a message entitled, The Grace of Giving. So turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 7, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. For the most part, North Americans don't talk about how much they make or how much their house costs or how great are their investments or their net worth. You know, we do boast about some of our possessions, like our car, if it's an exceptional one, and we want everyone to see it. And I've noticed that some people boast about being able to, you know, take an early retirement, which I think means that they now have sufficient means never to have to work again. But it's the actual number, that it's the actual dollar amount of what we're worth. Well, that's usually off limits. But we do like to let people know if and when we have it made. That is, our boasting has to be sufficiently discreet, but explicit enough to let other people know whether or not we're a success. Of course, Jesus is going to have none of that. Luke 12, 15, he says that a man or a woman's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. How much you make or how much you've accumulated or the wisdom of your investments is no reflection of your worth, at least not to God. But let me get back to that matter of being sufficiently discreet about our money. Because this is a cultural value, a great many of us think that it's no one's business as to how much we give or if we actually give at all. And some of us have come to think that a church is being too greedy if it asks us to give sacrificially. Opportunities to give should be there. But after that, we have no right to speak about responsibility and finance. It's just not done in our culture. And on a personal note, let me put on a hat I wore for 35 years, that of being a pastor of a local church. In all the years that I was pastoring, I found that sermons on the importance of giving generously and sacrificially have netted me more criticism than any other messages that I've preached. You know, I could preach on sexual morality or the roles of men and women and get much less criticism as when I spoke on giving. Clearly, I've entered into a very sensitive arena. And I like to say there are more sensitive nerve endings in your wallet than in any other place in your body. And yet there are few people that are more attractive to many of us than generous people. See, they just stand out. They win the accolades from others. They represent for many people the ideal. It's just, we may like the idea of generosity, but we deeply resent the person who demands it of us. We mistrust their motives. And in short, I think the value that most people have embraced, at least when it comes to the giving of money, is that we applaud when it's done, but we should leave it up to the individual conscience. And I make mention of that because this deeply held North American value is definitely not a value that you're going to find in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 are two chapters in which Paul really holds nothing back. He urges the Corinthian believers to give. Indeed, I think it's fair to say he even comes close to shaming them for their unwillingness to give. And before we begin our text, there are two things that we need to clear up. First, there are those who wonder how this section on giving seems to have been dropped into the Second Corinthian text. I mean, what I mean to say is that up until now, Paul has been wooing a very difficult church to repent and get right with God. And in marvelous fashion, he seems to have accomplished that, at least to a large degree. 
Well, how is it then, after such a tender moment of rejoicing, that the majority of God's people have repented, that Paul suddenly urges them to give? I mean, what led to that? It seems abrupt. It seems uncalled for. But the matter of giving in chapter 8 and 9 is not as abrupt as we might think. You see, Paul's challenge for the Corinthian believers to give is really a part of their repentance. In order to find out why this section is here, let's, let's give some background. Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem had been hit quite hard by a famine. And Paul was raising money among Gentile Christians to support the Jewish brothers in time of great need. He explains that matter thoroughly in Romans 15, 25 to 27. There he writes, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. And that's Paul's reasoning. The Jewish believers sacrificed to bring to the Gentiles the gospel of Jesus. Now, it was the Gentile believers who were required to repay the debt by bringing the Jewish believers financial aid in, in desperate times. Now then, initially, the Corinthian church had said, yeah, we want to get on board with this special project. You know, the church in Antioch had led the way and other churches, especially those in northern Greece. That's called Macedonia in the Bible. Well, they had already taken up an offering. But since the Corinthian church had committed themselves to that project, Paul had also given them instructions. And you can read about those instructions in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1-4. There Paul wrote, Now concerning the collection for the saints, As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. And so the matter of giving to this special project was, was one the Corinthian church had said, we're on board. We'll get right to it. Well, and then came the conflict between the church and Paul and the matter of giving to the needy Jewish Christians. Well, it just dropped off their radar screen. The church had made a commitment and then ended up doing nothing about it. So in chapters 8 and 9, we find Paul's urgent plea to take up what they had left undone. Now, here's an important note. Please notice that 2 Corinthians 8 to 9 are not about regular tithes and offerings. And I say that because I've often seen these chapters made to, to attempt to apply to the regular weekly giving to your local church. And, and in that vein, some people really do love to quote 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. You know, it says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. That is, don't you dare tell me to tithe. See, the Bible says it's up to me to decide in my heart to what extent I should give. Well, no, the Bible doesn't exactly say that. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7 is about a special offering over on top of regular tithes and offerings. See, here's an example. Most of the churches that I've served have had a practice of receiving a monthly benevolent offering, and it's given exclusively for the poor and needy in our community. 
So on the first Sunday of every month, we would actually receive two offerings, not one. And that second one was for a special purpose. It was in relationship to the second one that I'd often say, give as you've decided in your heart. And I wouldn't say that about the first one. The first one was about our commitment to the local fellowship of believers. And I think it's important to keep this in mind as we go through this passage. See, there are times when special needs do arise, and when they do, Christians are not to stop supporting their local church or other Christian ministries. Rather, at such a moment, they're going to look into their hearts and say, what should I do at this moment? Has God given me the freedom to give over on top of what I normally give? And that's what this passage is all about. Okay, after all of that, I think we're ready to start. But as we do, might I give you a little nudge as we read? You will, if you're observant, notice that the word grace is going to be repeated four times in these seven verses. That's because, as we can plainly see, the ability to give above and beyond what's expected, it's an act of grace. In God's abundant goodness, he frees up the heart to give sacrificially. All right, here we go. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 2. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in wealth of generosity on their part. Now, it is a danger when reading this passage to let our eyes glaze over, but don't let that happen. Paul's speaking about a grace given to the Macedonian churches. Again, Macedonia is northern Greece, and the churches Paul's referring to, the church in Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, and the church in Berea. Now, here's the kicker. In each of those three cities, Paul had been persecuted. He was imprisoned in Philippi. He was thrown out of Thessalonica and told he was never allowed to come back. And then some of his enemies from Thessalonica had followed him to Berea and caused trouble there. That persecution was then directed at the churches that Paul had established. And from the moment they came to Christ, Christians in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea were persecuted, and it took a financial toll. And yet, these believers had been begging Paul for the privilege of giving. And what do you make of that? Paul says it's grace. Every day we partner with radio stations across the country, like the one you're listening to right now, to air the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada. We want to thank the faithfulness of our radio partners and remind you to thank them as well. We also want to thank our listeners from across Canada who support this ministry with your encouragement and financial contributions. Your thoughtfulness ensures Bible teaching is made available in your community and across Canada as Back to the Bible Canada remains steadfastly committed to teaching the life-changing truths of the Bible. To our radio partners and listeners alike, thank you. This ministry of Bible teaching on radio could not be accomplished without you. To learn more about the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada and all the resources available, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. In contrast to the three Macedonian churches, the Corinthians were doing fairly well, that is, financially. And there's a reason for that. From the book of Acts, we learn that the leadership in the Jewish synagogue in Corinth tried to make trouble for Paul there. 
but the proconsul in the Greek province of Achaia would have none of it. He threw the charges out of court, and he didn't care one whit who was enraged over Paul's ministry. And that gave Paul the opportunity to grow a considerable church in that city. He spent a year and a half in Corinth, fully protected by the law, and the rest of the believers were too. So being a Christian did not cost the Corinthian believers a financial hardship. And when there are no legal means of persecuting the church, church members can carry on in their economic pursuits. That's to say, compared to the Macedonian Christians, the Corinthian Christians were very well off. Now then consider the contrast. The poor Macedonian Christians had given to this special project, but the relatively wealthy Corinthians had not yet done so. It's unnerving to hear it. And I say that because, by far, most North American Christians don't even come close to giving a tithe or 10% of their offering to the Lord, never mind giving on top of that. I mean, who's got that kind of money? But there are these poor believers all over the world that look very much like the widow that Jesus pointed out in the temple. She gave everything she had to live on, while the rich gave out of their excess, knowing they have a lot more to live on than that. Well, now, just how poor were these Macedonian believers? Well, look at what the words that Paul uses. First, he says they were in a severe test of affliction. Literally, it means that they were being crushed. The cities in which they lived weren't relenting from the economic pressure that they were putting on Christians. Macedonia made it clear that they didn't want Christianity in their area, and any church was going to pay a very dear price if they insisted on remaining. So that pressure was unrelenting. Severe test of affliction, says Paul. It's an accurate description of the everyday life of those believers. And might I say this again? You know, we in the West have no idea. You know, we think that if someone speaks badly of us, you know, we're in affliction. May God never allow us to experience what those Macedonian Christians experienced. Now, notice the second descriptor that Paul gives to indicate how desperate matters had become. He speaks of their extreme poverty. You know, one commentator said that we could translate this as their down-to-the-depth poverty. It was about as desperate as it could get. And we've got to imagine that some were struggling a great deal just to make ends meet. Every single day was a struggle just to survive and not to succumb to the grinding poverty. Now then, you would say, you know, it must have become very desperate there indeed. Yeah, but Paul adds to their poverty was also their abundant joy. And you have to imagine these believers as men and women who thought it was better to give up on the world than to give up on Jesus. Your loving kindness is better than life. I mean, they must have remembered that it was a privilege to identify with Jesus and his sufferings. There was a palatable gladness in Macedonia. If you had visited any of their churches, you would have been overwhelmed by the pleasure those believers found in Christ. Their churches were overflowing with joy. Again, the response that many of us need when hearing of this is the response of shame. I mean, how is it that we who have so much are so often complaining when those who have paid the ultimate price for following Jesus smile and are quick to praise and are overflowing with joy? But Paul is not done even yet. When he says, you know, you think the commingling of this extreme poverty with this palpable joy, this mixture caused something to bubble up and overflow. And what was that thing? Paul says the result was a wealth. Yeah, he uses the word wealth, a wealth of generosity. 
That, says Paul, is the grace, the favor, the blessing that these believers didn't deserve from God, but God in love gave it to them anyway. There was in their hearts a wealth of generosity. They love to give. So let's look at verses 3 and 4. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, when Paul says they were begging to give, we have to imagine that Paul was not encouraging them to give as generously as they insisted on giving. I mean, how do you go to the poorest of the poor and tell them to give to the poor in another city? Well, I wouldn't do that, and Paul wasn't doing it either. It was the great preacher, John Chrysostom, who said of this passage, they did the begging, not Paul. Indeed, we could almost imagine Paul telling them to give less. He's their loving pastor and friend, and he knew all too well what they were going through. I mean, how does one receive an offering from such people? And yet we have to imagine their response. Would you take away from us this privilege? I mean, because we're poor, have we no part in sacrificing for others? Are you saying to us that imitating Jesus and laying down our lives for others can't be what we do just because we're poor? Would you deny us this wonderful privilege? No, you will not. We insist on giving sacrificially. It's sobering to hear what happened. But more than that happened, these believers not only gave what they could afford, they gave beyond what they could afford. And Paul still not finished, verse 5. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. I really can't think of anything that defines the spiritual health of a person or of a church better than verse 5. You know, these believers knew that giving was at the heart of the Christian lifestyle, but they also knew there was a hierarchy of where one begins giving. No, giving doesn't begin at home. Rather, it begins by offering up our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. There's nothing more pleasing, they said, than to offer ourselves up to Jesus. And that's what they did. And they knew that, that it is a grace from God to say, not my will, but yours be done. I offer myself to you. That was their first impulse. And then after that, or we might say, because of that, they offered themselves up to the apostles. They said to the apostles, how can we serve you in your ministry? Now step back. Consider what we've just learned from these believers. Not only was their giving a sign that they longed to give, but it was also a sign of their loyalty, their patriotism to the Lord. And I use the word patriotism deliberately because every country on earth longs for evidence of commitment to the state from the people who live there. That's one of the reasons people join the military. They, they want to defend their homeland. They want to demonstrate their commitment to their homeland. Now look, patriotism, as we all know, demands sacrifice. And so it is with all true believers. After Jesus comes our loyalty to fellow believers, wherever they are, wherever they are in the world, our first commitment is not to our country, but to the new nation, the citizens of the kingdom of our God in Christ. We should be known for our fierce devotion to one another. Now we see why that's grace. Finding this attitude among believers is one that is brought about by God. It's his loving care for his children that drives us to find ways of expressing love to one another. It's grace, says Paul. Now to verses 6 and 7, as Paul applies what we learn from the Macedonians to the Corinthians. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. 
but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Accordingly, says Paul, having learned from what God was doing in Macedonia, it's now time to act. You can't just learn of such grace and remain unaffected. You know, Titus is the one who had been sent back and forth from Paul to the Corinthian believers. Titus, who had initially reported to Paul that there was an extraordinary act of grace going on in Corinth. The majority in that church had repented of their sins and determined to end their rebellious ways. They wanted to get right with God, be at peace with him, in submission to their apostle. It was grace. Hence is Paul accordingly, as you already excel in everything. And here in everything, he's very specific. Notice he mentions four things, faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, or, you know, I might say serious intensity in your faith. These things, says Paul, they're all because God's grace has visited you. But now, says Paul, it's not enough. You need to ask God for another grace to free you up to give generously. Ask God to free you from the idolatry of money. Ask God to open up your pocketbook so that you can learn to be as free and joyful as the Christians in Macedonia. How about you, my dear listener? Is that the kind of grace you want from God? Oh, if you don't have it, ask him for it. He'll give it to you. Thanks so much, John. You know, I think it's true to say that the act of giving extends really far beyond money. Perhaps even the giving of money is the easy way out. Well, I mean, it, <laughs> well, it depends on who you're talking to. I mean, I suppose, uh, I mean, there are a lot of people think that the giving of money is uh, is the hard way out because it feels like carving off a piece of their flesh. But, you know, God does call upon all of us uh, to offer our entire lives as a living sacrifice to him. So uh, giving, I mean, I think the giving of money is one symbol of giving that is uh, a part of our entire lives. Um, you know, we surrender our life to Christ. Uh, we surrender our future to Christ. We surrender to Christ um, his definition of what should be the joyful and full life. So you know, all of these things, I mean, we give of ourselves fully, recognizing that we receive so much back from the Lord. So yes, it is true that, you know, uh, giving of money is but one thing, but I think it's an essential part because where the giving of money is taken away, Uh, we miss something that's essential. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for a continuing series, The Price of Victory, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Throughout 2021, we pray that the Bible would be at the center of all you do guiding, encouraging, even challenging you in your walk with Jesus. Every resource Back to the Bible Canada creates and shares with you will continue to offer Bible teaching you can trust to support your walk with God. This month, we want to send you for free during the month of February, Dr. Newfeld's new book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. Based on his powerful teaching series of the same name, the truths you'll learn as you walk through New Testament teachings on the benefit of your salvation will be transformational. Help us to continue bringing excellent Bible teaching to anyone seeking truth and transformation. 
Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or donate securely online at backtothebible.ca.